You are listening to Radio 2050, the intersection of Chicano art and politics with your host, Aztec Parrot. Today, we air an interview that I recently did with a Chicano from New York, photographer and photojournalist, Luis C. Garza, whose exhibit of black and white photographs entitled The Other Side of Memory is on display at the Riverside Art Museum until March 19, 2023. This interview was conducted inside the Riverside Art Museum. Here is Luis C. Garza. I'd like to introduce a Chicano from New York, photojournalist, curator, documentary filmmaker, evolutionary curator also too, Luis C. Garza. How are you doing today, sir? I am doing well. I'm doing magnificent after our opening event yesterday, which was stupendous. Yes, it was a great opening that really complements a great exhibit. I'll put it that way. And not only is it great in its beauty, but also in its historical significance too, capturing a lot of, of the history that of 1970 and 71 primarily through black and white photographs. Your life has started from being a Chicano from New York and then your arrival to Los Angeles, where you have a string of events that become very significant in your work and in your life. Maybe we could just try to provide some type of a context for the listener to hear about once your arrival to Los Angeles. Uh, I first come out to Los Angeles in 1965 two weeks prior to the Watts Rebellion. And uh, I stay with a family of Puerto Ricano, Mexicano, and Pico Rivera, where I <clears throat> first arrived. And uh, that's the beginnings of my exploration of Los Angeles and my becoming an Angelino. And I began to move around the Los Angeles area, getting to know it, accommodating myself. But I'm going back and forth to New York, because that's where my family is. And there's a series of journeys that I take back and forth by bus, by auto, by plane, by whatever means I can get to go back and forth. But Los Angeles now has become a base for me in my photographic history and trajectory where I first begin to pick up the camera and the evolution begins. Then you become introduced in the Chicano movement of Los Angeles and Southern California, and you join La Raza magazine in the late 60s as a photojournalist. That dates back to 1968 when La Raza was, was a newspaper still. It was a 12-page bilingual spread newspaper local that started in the basement of an Episcopalian church that was run by Father Luce and Father Woods and several other priests who were dedicated to social movement. And they give the support mechanism to establishing this newspaper to communicate to the social activism that's beginning to take place in the late 60s and the rise of Chicanismo and the Chicano movement. I'm introduced to the editors and to Father Luz and to a number of the activists at that time by a man by the name of Ed Bonilla, 
And Ed Bonilla was an organizer from Neighborhood Adult Participation Project. It was one of the great society projects from Lyndon Johnson presidential era. And I'm broke, I'm out of money, I don't know too many people, and I have a friend who says to me, let me introduce you to Ed Bonilla and see if he can help you with work. So I'm being interviewed for the first time by Ed Bonilla, who's stroking his goatee and looking at me through his tinted shades, and says to me, you're from New York? I go, yeah, I'm from New York. Are you Puerto Rican? I go, no, I'm Mexicano. My family comes from Navacoila in South Texas. They arrive in New York in 1922. And I begin to tell him a little bit about the story. And he says, okay, all right. And uh, you need a job. I go, yeah, I need a job. And he goes, and you take pictures, as he points to the 35-millimeter Pentax camera I'm carrying with me. And I go, yeah, I take pictures. I had just mentored with a commercial photographer who taught me the basics. So I had a basic understanding of darkroom work and film work and such like that. It's the beginning of my evolution, which becomes a revolution. And uh, Ed says, okay, you take pictures and you need a job. I said, yeah, I need a job. He goes, and you're not Puerto Rican. I go, no. Yeah, I am by osmosis. I'm a lot of things, you know, I'm Italian, I'm Irish, I'm Jewish, I'm Boricua. So, you know, I'm all of these things that I grew up with in the streets of New York. And he goes, a Chicano from New York. That's the first time I ever heard the word Chicano. And so I think to myself, Chicano, Mexicano, close enough? I said, yeah, I'm a Chicano from New York. And he goes, mm, pues orale, you got the job, ese. And I go, all right, fantastic, man. What's the job? He goes, huh, you're going to organize the people. Oh, I am? How do you do that? He goes, pues, you show up tomorrow morning, you bring your camera, and you're going to begin. And I showed up with my camera, and Ed flipped my worldview because he parachuted me into the Chicano movement that was just beginning to open up and flower and rise and have become a local, regional, national movement between L.A., Corky, and Colorado, Tijerina, and Nuevo Mexico, and uh, South Texas with La Raza Unida Party and all of that. So all of that's beginning to take place. And so my education as a photographer, my razón de ser, begins to form, begins to come into focus. That's how I begin as a photographer, de serio. And then something significant happens to you that really sets the course of your life in 1971 in, of all places, Budapest, Hungary. What happens in 71 to you? In Budapest, Hungary, I meet David Alfaro Siqueiros, uh, el maestro muralista, one of los tres grandes, Diego Rivera and Clemente Orozco. I traveled to Budapest, Hungary, via the Soviet Union as a, a member of the American delegation that was formed by a guy by the name of Irvin Sarnoff, who has passed away with the Peace Action Council back in 71. You got to remember, it's the height of the Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis, Brezhnev is in power in Russia, and 
Richard Nixon is in power here in the United States. Uh, assassinations, uh, civil rights movements, demonstrations going on. The country is in turmoil here in the United States as well as through the world. And so we're approached by Irvin Tsarnoff at La Raza Magazine. He wants a representative to join the American delegation, which is made up of Quakers, SDS, Students for Democratic Society, Black Panther, a number of civil rights groups that form the delegation. And I'm the only Chicano, the only Latino within the delegation. So we arrive in Moscow. We stay there in Moscow for a week, and then we fly to Budapest, Hungary for a week. And at a breakfast gathering, a Mexican delegate approaches, and this is an international event. It's like the United Nations of the Eastern Bloc at that time. And so the American delegation table is approached by a Mexican delegate who says, we understand there's a Chicano in the American delegation. And everybody looks to me, and he goes, compañero. Acompáñame. I get up. I have no idea where I'm going, what's about to happen. He escorts me to the Mexican delegation table where, you know, you got about 15, 20 Mexicanos gathered, all of the top Mexican delegates of the left there. And Siqueiro stands up. He opens his arms and he says, Compañero, cuéntame de este movimiento chicano. Me da un abrazo. Fuerte, siéntate, vamos a hablar. So I sit down between Siqueiros, his wife, the historian, and the other Mexican delegates, and we begin the conversation. I hardly knew who Siqueiros was. We're not taught that in school. And I have no arts training whatsoever. I barely graduated from high school. So I have no formal education in the arts at all. I'm raw. But nonetheless, me da un abrazo, and we would get together in the evenings for the next two or three days up in the hotel room. we sit on the floor, open up a pack of cigarettes, because he was a heavy chain smoker, and a bottle of vodka. There was no tequila, so we drank vodka. And he would ask me, a ver, cuéntame. Because down in Mexico, they're receiving information. You got to remember, Tlatelolco just happened and the massacre of Mexican students has happened. So you got Mexicanos that are coming over to the other side of the border seeking refuge, as well as you got Chicanos going into Mexico seeking refuge. You know, so the lines of connection are beginning to open up between Mexico and La Chicanada here. So I start answering as best I could with the limited experience that I'm getting into. So I'm getting deeper and deeper into this. And then he starts asking me about his mural, America Tropical, because the efforts are going on to recover the mural. And do you know about my mural? I barely knew about it because I was meeting people who were first establishing the cultural center Plaza de la Raza. And Plaza de la Raza, some of the people there were approaching him in terms of conservation of the mural because the mural itself on Alvera Street is 18 by 80 feet, and the whitewash that covered it up was beginning to fade, and the mural was coming through. And those artistas were going up to the rooftop, the second story of Alvera Street, to look at the mural. So 
Siqueiros planted the seed in 1932 with America Tropical, and the seed germinates over the next 20, 30 years. And as the mural begins, como, it's like an apparition. Una, una, una ventana empieza to open up. And so the artistas will go back to the community, and that's the beginning of the Chicano mural movement because it's Siqueiros who inspires them. So I begin to make that connection after I meet Siqueiros, and I go deeper into Siqueiros when I return back to L.A. And so Siqueiros touched me in a way that was very profound. You know, It's like these series of things that happen in your life that just turn you around. And so I become dedicated to finding out more about Siqueiros, getting involved with the res revival, recitation, uh, conservation of his mural in L.A. And La Raza then shifts in from a newspaper into a magazine, and we're going full bore. So we go from 12 pages to 60 to 70, 80 pages. And the magazine goes from, goes from local to national to regional to international, hemispheric. And so we start covering all kinds of subject matter. And my journey as a photographer gets more involved, more complicated. I begin to go to UCLA. I start studying film over there, and then I get into television work, and it leads me into theater. After I meet Siqueiros in Budapest, Hungary, and I return to Los Angeles, I become dedicated to knowing more about Siqueiros. I begin to polish myself, get deeper into the arts, or at least the arts of Siqueiros. So a whole new world opens up to me in terms of the arts and the camera that leads me into curatorial work. So there's an evolution in my life as I move forward, but it's the camera that changes my life. What, in Siqueiros' visit to Los Angeles in the 30s and then revisiting again, how does Ruben Salazar because some of the photos are exhibited here from that fateful day of the Chicano Moratorium. How does he play into the story? How does Ruben Salazar? Well, the Chicano Moratorium of August 29th, 1970, dates my meeting with Siqueiros in 71. The photographs that were taken by my fellow colleagues at La Raza documenting the Chicano Moratorium. I was in New York City at that time. I was not here in Los Angeles. My mother had taken ill, was undergoing a cancer operation. So I was back in New York and hoping that she'd pull through. But upon my return back to LA, you know, we were printing up all the images, all the photographic images that took place on August 29th. And so I'm in the dark room, we're printing, we're publishing, we're putting out flyers, we're putting out special editions on the moratorium. <clears throat> and, you know, it's a weekly thing, practically. The demonstrations are going on constantly, all over. And so the pace picks up, and photographically, the pace picks up for myself and for my fellow colleagues at La Raza. And uh, so we're recovering as best we could. We're getting the word out as best we could. So photography becomes a major element within the La Raza magazine. And so it begins to transform. And 
expand in terms of political content, in terms of photographic content, cartoons, uh, essays, a whole bunch of things begin to take place within the magazine itself that expands uh, the narrative of documenting what is going on with our community, uh, not only here in Los Angeles, but throughout the United States and hemispherically. Okay, so how does Chiqueros tie in to Ruben Salazar? Well, that's part of what Siqueiros was asking me uh, when I meet him, because Siqueiros then creates a, he makes a contribution to the efforts, and he makes this poster of Ruben Salazar. It was a limited edition seriograph that he does in Mexico. Several people from the 2B Cultural Center, La uh, Plaza de la Raza, traveled to Mexico to meet with Siqueiros, and they returned with some of the prints and so these prints are sold at private auctions and private fundraising events. But Siqueiros is aware, becoming more aware of the Chicano movement, and he's very interested in his fellow paisanos over here on this side of the border because it had never really taken place to the extent that it was happening now with the Chicano movement. I mean, this was the Chicano Intifada, uh, if you will, that was taking place. And so that becomes Siqueiros' interest. And he begins to dedicate more interest, sharing it with his fellow Mexicanos. And unfortunately, he passes away. De Los Reyes, January 6, 1974. So my photographic work within this exhibition goes from the late 60s to the mid-1970s within these 66 photographs that are on exhibit. My photographic archive is a personal archive. is six to 8,000 other images that we've yet to develop and print and scan and digitize. Uh, so there's a whole other backstory to each of the images that are on view here. Some of them are what I call one-ups, you know, one shot, that was it. That's all I had the time for. And then others have both rolls of film. So there's a, a deeper context, and then there's work that nobody has ever seen. So this is the beginning steps for an evolution and recognition of my work that is going now public here within the Riverside Museum. And thank you, Riverside Museum, for taking the interest with the director, Drew Overridge, and Melissa Richardson Banks, and the whole RAM team here that is embracing the exhibition that we have here. So. I encourage all of you out there in Radio Land to, if you're listening, to come and visit the RAM, Riverside Art Museum, take a look at this exhibition, and also jump over and take a look at the Cheech exhibition, which is a whole new museum and a whole new cultural center in the Inland Empire area of Riverside. With that, maybe, can we go into the gallery and we talk a little bit about a couple of your pieces? As you enter the gallery, you go to the right, there's a representation of various movements that, that are going on. Everything from the Chicano power movement, Black Panthers, the police movement of oppression, I guess. And also, is that the Young Lords? That's the Young Lords in the South Bronx. In the South Bronx. Talk a little bit about this particular wall here. Well, let's start with the Young Lords. <clears throat> the Young Lords, it's a demonstration down on the South Bronx and uh, in the area of 139th Street an area that I was born and raised in New York City in the South Bronx. Now, the Young Lords uh, are also much like the Brown Berets or the Black Panthers. It's a civil rights group 
established by Puertorriqueños in this who are socially active and trying to improve the conditions for the Puerto Rican community of New York City. One, one of the things that I've noticed inside these pieces is, of course, you know, we see the young lords in, at a rally speaking with the community, getting folks fired up. And then we also have a collection of shots from uh, student demonstrations. This is this, this particular gathering here is January 31st, 1971, East L.A., Laguna Park. And it's thousands of, of people who gather and protest against the Vietnam War and police oppression. So it's a backshot looking at the sea of people who have gathered uh, to protest uh, against the war and police brutality that's taken place. You've got to remember our community was uh, heavily policed. Uh, the militarization of the police has taken place and, I mean, constant confrontations. This other one here, this lower one here, is a UCLA student bodies demonstration over at UCLA in terms of student rights and organizing on behalf of student rights. And then we have this beautiful depiction of a threadbare, which kind of represents, especially in California, the role of most people are labor. That's an interesting connection. And so we have the two students, crowd of community, community activists, and they're really the backbone of all three of those is a labor, a labor movement. Interesting connection because that photograph is of, taken in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. When I traveled to Budapest, Hungary via the Soviet Union, I first went to Moscow, then to Budapest for a week, then back to Moscow, and they invited us, any of us wanted to go up to Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and I said, yeah, sure. So a two-week trip turns out to be a one-month trip. And so I travel into various locations, and this is a threadmill factory. And this is one shot of many rolls of film that I shot. This selection is by, the whole show is curated by Armando Duron, who is a collector and an avid advocate for the arts. He is what I would like to refer to as my vision therapist. He, he brought together and selected these images out of my collection, and he's one of the few people who knows my collection to any degree and depth. So it's Armando who has helped to bring forth my imagery, yeah. particularly within this exhibition here. I want to look at, I think it's this wall right here, which starts off actually with a great photograph of Brown Buffalo, Oscar Zeto Acosta, from 74. This is very much kind of starts to use this journey through what would be a metropolitan city like downtown Los Angeles. You jump into New York. Are we back in Uzbekistan? No. Well, it's back in New York. No. This is Los Angeles. Los Angeles in a diner. This is a, I go into this restaurant to get a bite to eat, and I come across Soledad, who's this wizened old woman who's sitting in a booth. And the light that's coming in through the window is a strong, harsh light. And it's just very stunning in terms of the contrast and her look. And... Los arrugas, the wrinkles on her face and her hands. And so I start photographing her. And she just looks at me, you know, curiously. And there's a whole series of shots other than this one that I took of her as well. So again, it's L.A., New York, uh, Central Market, downtown. This photograph of this young woman coming out of the basement in New York City is the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated. So you see this grouping of people who are coming out into the streets because radios are blaring from apartment houses announcing the assassination of Martin Luther King. 
And that's the backstory to this photograph. Wow. Uh, this photograph is a Union Rescue Mission downtown Los Angeles. And these others here are Los Angeles downtown, Broadway, side streets. I'm, I would pick a, a neighborhood, I would pick a spot, and I would start photographing, and I'd just walk the streets. And whatever I saw that interested me or caught my eye, I would photograph. I'm a street walker. Definitely your photographic eye is in full display here, as with all photography exhibits. But let me ask you more of like a process question. When do you know to actually hit and capture that image? That's a... That's a internal... Your gyroscope is clicking. Sometimes you have to take several shots to get that one shot, and other times it just clicks like this shot or that shot that you see. It's just that one-up, that moment, and you just feel it. It's, it's a, a spiritual thing. It's an instinctual thing. It's, a, it's that the decisive moment, as Cartier-Bresson would say, the great French photographer, but it's also that spiritual moment, that, that moment that you'll never see again. And you look at it and you see it and you pow, you just click that button and hope that you got what you thought you got when you go into the dark room and you develop the roll of film and you say, I did see what I thought I saw and maybe a whole lot more because then you begin to see what Armando Duron as a curator is seeing, what he calls accidental aesthetics. But it's not so accidental, but it's instinctual aesthetics, if you can say that. I mean, I never tried to intellectualize my work. I don't intellectualize before I take a shot. Yeah. It comes from the spirit, it comes from the heart, it comes from the gut. Mm -hmm. You see it, photograph it. You intellectualize it later. Whenever I look, especially at photography, it's, for me, it's an extension of the murals. And I see Kettles being a muralist, one of the most famous Mexican muralists. This is a long, tradition of thousands of years of murals throughout all of Mesoamerica. And, but the one thing that I always look at, is I look at how hands and eyes are depicted because that, those are kind of like the internal signals that speak to us. That's a nonverbal communication. And so and this selection, especially like in, in these ones here with some of the street preachers, we see like their hands in motion. We see their, you know, we see their facial expression. We don't see his eyes, which is very interesting for a street piece, preacher not to show their eyes. But the elevation of the Bible and, and of the righteousness and their fingers. I mean, that's, these are just like amazing photographs. And well, there's a, thematically, when you begin to go through my work, you begin to see motifs, themes, and preachers were one of them because you would see them on street corners. I grew up in New York with evangelicals, hallelujahs, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, preaching the word with the tambourine. So uh, there's a series of photographs taken of different preachers here in L.A. that I would take. And these are particularly on Broadway area where a lot of these preachers, be they Mexicanos, Centroamericanos, or the Afro-Americans, or whatever. They each had their corner, they each had their... The black preacher here is wearing shades, and he's got his Bible. And this Mexicano, I think he's Mexicano. Hallelujah! Si, Señor, Jesus Cristo me salvo! You know, I grew up with that in New York. Mm -hmm. And so 
I look at them and I say to them, what possesses them? The Spirit possesses them to come out and spread the word. It's a, it's a calling. Mm-hmm. And so I say, I got to capture that calling. My calling is to photograph the calling. <laughs> so the calling is uh, addressing the calling. There, there is one particular piece that I would love to capture the history about. Okay. And it is this very iconic photo that appears on the cover of Yo Soy Joaquin. Homeboys. Talk about that, please. Homeboys is, uh, the backstory to Homeboys is, uh, this is a Liso Pico housing project in East L.A. And again, it's just a neighborhood that I picked and I walk into the area. You know, oftentimes, I, you know, I'm a lone wolf. So uh, me and my camera, I just walk. And so I go into projects and the kids are playing and, you know, in the playground area and such like that. And I come across these two young teenage adolescents and I start photographing. And this is one of a half a dozen different shots that I took of them. But this becomes the most iconic. And you mentioned Corky Gonzalez using it and the cover of Yo Soy Joaquin, which was the first time that my photograph appears on a book cover. So it's the beginnings of also my work going from La Raza, newspaper, magazine, into book, and then over the following decades into magazines and other book covers. So. A series of my photographs that graced the covers of several different books. The most latest was by Mike Davis, who passed away uh, just recently over the past few weeks, and John Wiener, who wrote L.A. in the 60s, and my photograph of Junto uh, that takes place on January 31st graces the cover of their book publication. So it's an honor for me to be having my work selected by such distinguished authors and writers, historians. You bring up some of your contemporary work right now, and for me it begs the question about, I'm not sure, participation or non-participation in digital photography. What's your take on that? Uh, Well, digital photography for me is new, but it's a marriage that has been going on with my work for well over a decade because the image of Siqueiros, the portrait shot of Siqueiros, is that we first digitize it and we blow it up into large portions, a large G-clay image. Uh, Richard Duardo, who's passed away, the Andy Warhol of the West Coast, blows it up. We make several prints. And that's the beginning of the merger of digital and analog photography. And now, most recently over the past few years, I've picked up digital camera and I'm photographing with digital camera as well as analog film. So it's a marriage between the two that I'm learning now. It's fascinating. You know, each one has its own technical skill that you have to develop. And like any craft, you have to study it, you have to polish it, you have to practice and you eventually are successful at knowing how to use the equipment. Okay, you know, speaking of equipment, there's two more questions I'm asking you. But the first one is for photography heads. Those are just, you know, like yourself, you referred yourself as the lone wolf. So now the lone wolf, there's a people's movement arising. The lone wolf is then called 
into battle. You hear the call, like I have to go you know, document this, take the photographs of it. For those photographer heads, which equipment are you gonna take with you? What is your trusty swore, your trusted attack equipment? Well, the lone wolf becomes part of the pack. And the pack is all of those who share the same enthusiasm, belief, aspirations to open up doors that have been closed to us for so many centuries. And we begin to break them down, just as we continue to do to this day. So I look at myself as part of that movement, not only of resistance, but of overcoming. Overcoming the prejudices, uh, becoming a conduit of information and sharing a source with everyone so that people can begin to become more of a sense of camaraderie, family, you know, where we're not a threat. We're not looking to take away, we're looking to add. And we are part of, we're not apart from. And that's how I look at it. And I look at my work and the international scope of it now as this curatorial work begins to demonstrate to me, uh, and some of the comments that have come back to me is how international my work is, which is quite different from a lot of my colleagues. So it's, it's, I'm interested to see how uh, further exploration of my work begins to take place with other curators and historians and other people who are interested in my work. In a short answer, what is the responsibility of the artist to community? That's a two-way street. What is, what is one's responsibility to their family? I look at the community as my family. Again, I'm not a part from, I am a part of. So I am merely a conduit documenting my surroundings and that I'm sharing that with my fellow family members. And everyone is my family member, as far as I'm concerned. Pero don't cross me. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it. Thank you for, uh, for lending your voice to this. Muy agradecido, muy agradecido, y muy agradecido, como dice Don Pedro. Thank you for listening to Radio 2050. This episode was produced and edited by Darren J. DeLeon. Radio 2050 is part of the Five Sisters Audio Garden Network. You can listen to Radio 2050 every Friday night on KUCR 88.3 FM between 8 and 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Or visit the Radio 2050 archive on SoundCloud.